Good morning. You look, you all look really beautiful. I think it should be a requirement that at least once everybody should come up here and look at all of you. You look great. You'll notice the title on the screen says, What Are You Thinking? This is not in the sense of when your kids commit some knuckleheaded act and you say very pointedly, What are you thinking? But in the literal sense, what are you thinking? What is happening in your thought life? And we'll see if this works. All right. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in, in God. And 2 Corinthians ten five says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Follow along with me if you would. Most folks live below their potential for joy and happiness because they're oblivious to habitual ways of thinking and or the quality of their thoughts. The one thing we do have complete control over is our thinking. We spend very little time thinking about what we are thinking about. Instead, it's mostly like background noise while doing what we engage in other activities. However, we do not have to be slaves to our own thoughts. Let's say a quick prayer together. Father, we give this time to you. We invite you, Spirit of the living God, to be with us today and speak to us in whatever way that we individually need. We praise you for it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let me ask you this. Would you agree that God desires us to experience joy and peace and happiness But the reality is that our own thought life can be a hindrance to the Holy Spirit's work inside of us. Does that make sense? There's doubt and fear and countless other thoughts that fight against a full measure of the fruit of God's Spirit inside of us and welling up inside of us, right? And I hope we all agree that it's important, first of all, to mirror God's character in what we say and what we do, yes? In other words, our actions should be fair and honest, kind, loving. We should be Christ-like in everything that we do, yeah? Okay. Well, here's something to think about. Would you also agree that it's really difficult to mirror God's image, His likeness, in other words, being like God, in our little motors up here between our ears? Isn't that hard? It's very difficult for a lot of us who, like me... Don't have it all together. I'm going to invite you to consider these statements. No thoughts are neutral and every individual thought matters. Is that true? Is that challenging? Did anybody else find that like, whoa, wait a minute, every thought matters? What we persistently think eventually but inevitably crystallizes into the words we speak and then the things we do. And finally, look at this last one. Negative thinking corrupts your brain and triggers harmful mental states such as anxiety, moodiness, depression, and irritability. Your thoughts often misrepresents, misrepresent reality by bending, distorting, deleting, exaggerating, or otherwise manipulating the truth. Negative thoughts do not come from God. In one of the Jesus in pamphlets, Gordon notes this, like it or not, we are in a battle. And the fight going on up here in our heads 
This battle for the mind, as it were, is no less than spiritual warfare. We are in a fight for the thoughts that capture our minds and the resulting intentions of our hearts. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Jim encouraged us to pursue things that foster a pure heart. You remember that? Good message, wasn't it? How many of you know that begins right up here, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, I'm sure most of you in this room have no difficulty in this area. Your thought life is exemplary. But like I said, if you're like me, sometimes you just might find yourself hoping the negative stuff doesn't take over. Sometimes it's just that's the reality we're, we're at. But look at this uh, quote with me again, especially the second part. We spend very little time thinking about what we are thinking about. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought of that? We spend a little time thinking about what... I mean, usually you're just buzzing along, right? Okay. I'm glad it's not just me. This quote comes from a little book called The 4-8 Principle. And honestly, I say little because it's physically small. Not using little, little in the uh, figurative term. Uh, the 4-8 Principle is by a fellow named Tom Newberry. Does anybody know this book? We have been discussing um, parts of this book a bit in our house group. And honestly, because the folks at the Generations House Group are so brilliant, um, I get to share with you some of the things that we've discussed because we've had some really good discussions about this. So that's what brings us here today with this discussion. So as you might have guessed, the uh, title of the little smiley face book, The 4-8 Principle, refers to Philippians 4-8 which says, of course, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Set your minds on these things. Well, you may have heard Philippians 4.8 called, or maybe you haven't, but now you will, the to-think list. The to-think list, like a to-do list for your brain. The idea behind the so-called 4-8 principle is to give this list, Philippians 4-8, weight in your decisions and allow them to shape your conduct. Does that make sense? Follow along with me if you would. The fact that Paul is telling us what we should focus on reveals a critical point. We always have a choice. If we didn't, this verse would be unnecessary. If we were naturally positive all the time, Paul wouldn't emphasize this point so dramatically. If we could not control our negativity, this teaching would be unrealistic and beyond our capability. That's kind of a bold statement, isn't it? He's saying that verse wouldn't be in there if it wasn't true, that we didn't have choice in the matter. And I'll be honest with you, I got that from a commentary, but I couldn't find the reference, so I just put a commentary up there. So hopefully the commentary police won't get me. So if it's really true, then, that we own our thoughts, in other words, my thoughts are really my thoughts, then I have the right and the ability to choose to think God-centered thoughts, thoughts that lead to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as the Scripture says. As we read a couple of minutes ago when we started, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Think about Romans 12.2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? 
the renewing of your mind, right? The renewing of your mind, and then you'll know how to find God's will. Well, Mr. Newberry in the little happy book says, the renewing of your mind is related to mental discipline, mental discipline. He encourages us this way. Keep your thoughts fixed on God. Keep your thoughts fixed on God. He notes, mental discipline is the ability to keep your thoughts consistently focused. When we keep our thoughts fixed on God, the things of God will naturally permeate our lives. But with weak mental muscles, the existence of joy and peace is random and unpredictable. How many of you know life sometimes is really random and unpredictable and joy and peace just aren't there all the time, are they? Our potential for joy can be slowly dissolved, first privately in our own thoughts and then publicly coming out in our actions and circumstances. Instead, we must learn to focus our thoughts on the things that reflect and honor God's character. We've got to figure out a way to retrain our thoughts and our feelings. Listen to this. He says, think the thoughts you would think if you trusted God's promises completely. Completely. Make a shift from random reactive thinking to deliberate purpose-driven thinking. Right thinking is a choice that we have moment to moment. Personally, I have a hard time with that, but I'm trying to get to that place where I think, yeah, no, that's true. I have a choice moment to moment because I'd like to think that, well, it's just going on and I don't really have ownership over it. But the truth is we do have choices. Here's, um, Here's some challenge questions for you to think about. Are you trusting God's word more than you are trusting others about you? Can you name any improvements in your life that do not first involve change thinking? That's a tall order, isn't it? Well, I want something to change, but I don't really want to think about how to change it. Well, kind of getting it out of order, aren't we? Productive thinking and destructive thinking are both merely habits. As long as you have a choice, why not exercise your free will and choose the higher thoughts? And finally, are we being faithful stewards of our mental lives? Very challenging to me. So the idea here, as I'm sure you're catching, is to the best of our abilities to filter every thought through this so-called 4-8 principle, the list of things that Paul said, hey, keep your mind on these things. One aspect of consciously filtering off the stuff in your head is simply don't believe everything you think. Or like, I like to say it this way, don't believe everything you tell yourself. Have you heard this one? Well, this runs over into our our emotional state as well because negative thoughts ignite negative emotions. However, because, as we said before, we have the right, we have the ability to choose our own thoughts we can, we can remind ourselves, this is just the way I feel. This is just the way I feel, and it's not necessarily the truth, and thus it doesn't have to dictate your behavior. I just threw this in because it's beautiful. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you. That's a beautiful promise. The mind stayed on God. What a great illustration. Stayed, unmoving, focused, resolute on God. Isn't that beautiful? So God desires us to experience joy and peace in the knowledge that he has a good future for us. Is that true? Do you believe that? That he has a good future for you? 
But fully connecting with that knowledge sometimes eludes us, doesn't it? Mr. Newberry states this in his book, Your conscious mind can only hold one thought at a time, positive or negative. The only way to eliminate negative or counterproductive thinking is to replace it with a positive, empowering thought. He offers a simple method for redirecting your thoughts to the worthwhile, the constructive, the joy and peace producing. We call it the four principle, I'm sorry, the four eight principle checklist. Repeatedly ask yourself the base four eight questions. It's just a little term he used. Not nothing secretive about it. He just says, what, what are the questions that come out of the four eight principle? What am I thankful for? Who loves me? What am I hoping for? Next in the checklist, he says, recognize and contemplate the truth source. You are a child of God purchased by Christ's blood. Forgive others without exception. It's got to be on your checklist, doesn't it? And remember that you forgave them. Forgive yourself early and often, and remember that you forgave yourself. Focus on your God-given strengths. Don't exaggerate what is not working in your life while minimizing what is working. Man, don't we have the tendency to do that? Oh, this isn't working, and I'm totally focused on that. Well, what is working? And maybe focus on that. Refuse to allow negative thoughts and self-talk to set up shop in your mind. That's a tough one, isn't it? But it is, it's true. This thing that keeps nagging me, I'm going to say, yeah, you're going to have to go. And how do we do that? Well, it's not easy, but we're going to get there. Finally, ask God to help you preoccupy your mind with thoughts of him. And primarily, what is Jesus like? Now, we should be careful to recognize the difference between a Christ-centered, intentional thought life and what is called the power of positive thinking. Have you heard this positive confession? Okay. This is the idea that the key to everything is a positive mental attitude, that one should never entertain a negative thought. This type of thinking has been popularized by Norman Vincent Peale, uh, Robert Schuller, and others, and it sounds like this. Always be positive. Don't be negative or critical. Maintain positive self-talk. Have faith in yourself. Visualize yourself as successful, wealthy, a better you. And it will become a reality for you. Friends, those ideas are false. This stuff leads to a general loss of discernment. And it smacks of name it and claim it or health and wealth doctrine. In fact, that's where those things spring out of. And there are a lot of guys on TV purporting this stuff, and we need to be careful. Does it bother anybody else, however, that the term the power of positive thinking has been usurped by these guys? I don't like that. It bothers me. Because the words the power of positive thinking sound really cool. I'll just be frank with you. The most positive message there is, is the way of Christ. So let's offer Jesus-centered thinking all the time. Now I'm going to put you on the spot, as it were. I want you to hear me, but I don't want you to be mad at me. 
You have no excuse for not saturating your mind with Scripture. I'll say that again. You have no excuse for not saturating your mind with Scripture. So hearing that, some of you may be saying right now, cycling through the reasons why I can't memorize the Bible. And I want to invite you right now to look down here. I have put a stack of cards, blanks, and pens. Please come get them. Make it your day to say, no, even if I haven't memorized Scripture in years, come up here after the service and get some of that. It's not show and tell. It's come and get. And that way you've got something to springboard you into memorizing Scripture. Please pick out some verses and memorize them this week. Now I'd like to look closer at the to-think list, the 4-8 principle, along with some specific food for thought. (laughs) Whatever is true. If something is true, it corresponds to reality, right? When was the last time that you read Romans 8? In what might be the most important chapter ever written in human history, Paul describes in detail the state of the union that exists between God and us, those who believe in Jesus, and ends the chapter by stating that nothing can destroy that union. You know this chapter? I know you all do. So in the vein of keeping your mind on what is true, I want to invite you to read Romans 8 if you have not. So maybe after 25 times or so of reading Romans 8, that will become your reality. A joke, but I'm going to say please do memorize verse 23, uh, 32 and 33 this week if you have not. Let me go back. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? My friends, Jesus is truth. Whatever is noble, noble also can be thought of as honorable. When we think of something as honorable and noble, we think of something that's worthy of glory and honor. I'm going to twist your noggin a little bit. In the book of John, we read Jesus said to his disciples and then later to Thomas, stay with me, put your hand in my side, see the nail holes. Read this quote with me. I love this. I came across this a few weeks ago. Only by drawing close to his wounds can they be sent on a mission of reconciliation and forgiveness by the power of the Spirit. By repeating this action twice, in other words, John's uh, accounting, the evangelist makes clear that those who participate in our faith, the dying and rising of Christ, can only do so with authenticity if they are in constant touch with Jesus' wounds and those of humanity. A non-wounded faith is not authentic. Only a wounded faith is truly credible. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 affirms this. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This Jesus is our king. My friends, the wounded Jesus is worthy of honor and glory. 
whatever is right next in our list. We think of fair treatment, honesty, and maybe especially right standing or what we call righteousness. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, when you were dead in your sins, you were dead. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that beautiful? What is right? Jesus is right. He is righteousness embodied. And he offers that righteousness freely to all of us. Whatever is pure. We know what's not pure, don't we? Greed, filth, Bible includes silliness, impurity, covetousness, covetousness, hatred. Read this with me. Jesus, the beloved of God, has a pure heart. Having a pure heart means willing one thing. Jesus wanted only to do the will of his heavenly Father. Whatever Jesus did or said, he did and said as the obedient Son of God. I love this part. There are no divisions in Jesus' heart, no double motives or secret intentions. In Jesus, there is complete unity because of his complete unity with God. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is pure. Whatever is lovely and admirable, I group those two together because I started running out of space. (laughs) We think of that which is pleasing or agreeable, attractive, or something that's spoken well of, yes? Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I would dare you to think this way with me. The cross is lovely and admirable. In the great paradox of the Christian faith, we look upon the cross and say, that's meaningful. That is life, and that represents my forgiveness. There is great sadness and yet great joy in honoring the cross of Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do just that by installing that big cross we put here every year. We're going to contemplate his tremendous suffering, and then we're going to revel in the priceless gift of forgiveness that's that's purchased on that cross. The cross of Jesus is lovely and admirable. And finally... I lost a slide somewhere in there. I'll just read it to you. What is excellent and praiseworthy? Think about this for a second. Very simple. He knows everything about us and loves us anyway. He knows everything about us, all the dark places, and loves us anyway. In John 14, Jesus said, The Father and I will be with you, will be one and come into your heart, we will give you peace. And here, listen to this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. I mean, at the end of the day, what more do you need than the Savior 
and his father, the creator, to say to you, I'm going to be with you. I got you. I got you. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is worthy of all praise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the scripture encourages us to position our thoughts on things that are good and holy, to fix our thoughts on you and your holy son, our apostle and our high priest, the righteous one. But Lord, we need your help. So we offer you our minds right now, today, to say, Lord, help us by your spirit to keep our minds stayed on you, stayed on you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.